Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Food Biz Whiz. Well, it has been about 60 days since we first felt the shock of COVID-19 here in the U.S., and for us in the food industry, it started to feel real, at least for me, when Expo West was officially canceled. Now, here we are two months later, and while things don't feel normal, they do feel a little bit more clear, and emotions aren't running quite as high as they were. But things are still up in the air, of course, and we're still seeing rapid changes to our industry, some of which we expected and some which came as a surprise. I'm so excited to have my guest, Elliot Began, on the podcast today to talk about what's going on in our industry right now, how brands can stabilize and find opportunity despite the chaos, and what investment looks like in the food industry at this moment. We'll talk about whether or not investors are still act active in the space and how you might think about raising funds this year. So we've got a lot to talk about today. Stay tuned. You're listening to Food Biz Whiz, the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Ali Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going. I'm going to tell you a secret from my time as a grocery buyer. Buyers will only bring in your product line if they trust that you are going to bring high sales to your category. They don't care whether your product is the most delicious ever or made with local ingredients. They care about whether or not it's going to sell. How can you prove this to those buyers? With data. And that is why I love WeStock, and I wish it had been around when I was in my buyer role. WeStock has modernized the classic product request form, and it collects your fans and followers' enthusiasm into real data that you can use in your wholesale pitch. Buyers rely on numbers, and you can give them just that by collecting it with WeStock. Check them out at WeStock.io or find them in my show notes and use promo code FOODBIZWIZ for 25% off your first year. Hi there, Elliot, and welcome to Food Biz Whiz. Thanks. Glad to be here. Excited to have this conversation. Me too. Okay, my whizzes, you guys heard me say this in the introduction. Elliot and I have a ton to cover today, but before we dive in, I'm going to sing the praises of Elliot and Tig. So Elliot, you and I met a while back behind the scenes at a fancy food show. And I'm going to tell my whizzes that I immediately knew, Elliot, that you were the real, real deal when it came to supporting emerging brands in the food industry. So for my listeners who don't know Elliot, Elliot, he is a 30-year industry veteran, author, and the founder of Tig, a practice focused on helping emerging natural product brands grow. So I love I love this aspect of TIG. That's T-I-G. TIG is a customized one-on-one -on -one accelerator that positions natural product brands to raise capital, prove velocity, gain distribution, and scale. So basically all the essential things that a brand needs in order to succeed. So Elliot, again, welcome to the show. I don't normally start by asking this, but it feels appropriate right now. How are you doing? <laughs> uh -huh. I am doing well. And, you know, it is funny that you say that because that question used to be so innocuous, but now yeah. it has a much deeper meaning. And it is the way everybody is starting conversations and they actually 
are trying to find out how are you doing? You know, yeah, they actually care now, right? They, they actually care, and it's actually a, a, a true uh, bit of compassion, which is you know you you and I spoke before the show started about some of the the, the benefits, and I think that's one of them that there's a little bit more compa- compassion in the world, and people are uh, making sure they they express that to one another a bit more. So I'm I'm doing well, and I'm glad to hear that you're doing the same. But I want to just turn it back quickly and say you know, right back at you, Allie, because I think, you know, what you do and, and the way you support early stage brands, this is such, such a hard business. Um, and to have people who are in it to shepherd them through and to create ways for them to avoid, the, you know, the many pitfalls and minefields that exist between when they came up with the idea to when they see it really take flight and scale. Uh, it's It's so great to have people uh, like you and that in, in a greater ecosystem that that really care. Well, I'm honored that you say that. It, it means a lot. Um, we're in it together, right? I mean, you for, <laughs> for longer than I am, but um, yeah, we're in it together here. So 30 years, what, before we talk about life post COVID, can you tell me what your first role in the food industry was? Uh, well, my very, very first role, and I, this is like the worst thing ever to admit <laughs> in the natural product space was as a 15-year-old in Los Altos cooking chicken and uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. On there the you go. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's always been a weird relationship. I say this all the time because I have a love-hate relationship with with food and beverage and so forth. As somebody's always uh, been uh, challenged with my uh, weight. I love to eat. I love to drink. And yet uh, I surround myself by it. So it's... Uh, it's a little bit crazy, but I've been in the business forever. I, from, I, when I got out from undergrad, started right in the restaurant business, and yep. uh, and then from there through grad school, went on into big CPG, and and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, and so now you you are the founder of Tig. Can you tell us a little bit a little bit more detail about Tig and and how you guys connect with brands and what you do with them in, sure, our, sure. in our industry? Um, I mean, really, it's more about the why. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I, I spent most of my career in in, in uh, corporate life with a bent towards entrepreneurship. And you know, uh, for any of the, you know, any of you who are uh, uh, you know uh, aspiring entrepreneurs in in the corporate world, you know that you're not necessarily uh, viewed as the uh, the uh, normal people in the room because yep. you're trying to actually break things and and look at things differently. When I finally had the um, the guts to, to make the leap into entrepreneurship, I, by that point in my career, I had amassed 20 years worth of mistakes and hard-fought lessons and really thought that the best entrepreneur I could be is one that came alongside others who were far more creative and innovative and actually helped them avoid some of those mistakes and minefields. And that, that was the impetus for it. And then what happened was I started looking at accelerator programs um, and I love accelerator programs. So this is certainly not an admonishment of, of them, but, but I felt like in the CPG space and the natural product space in, in particular, um, they could be improved upon slightly. And, and, and primarily because um, most accelerator models were, were curriculum based and cohort based and yeah. time limited and asked founders to come, you know, out of their business, step away from their business into that. Um, and, and really, you know, I look at, at every brand, every product as its unique, uh, as its unique genetic code, its unique jigsaw puzzle, and you have to solve for it. 
uh, solve for all of the things that go from unit economics to consumers to brand activation to channel strategy. So to try to distill it down to commonalities um, doesn't give the most return, in my opinion. So we built TIG to do just that, to come alongside these early stage founders and their brands that are pre-seed to seed and help them navigate what is unfortunately deemed the valley of death. That's that gap between seed and series A, which, you know, far too many brands go and don't reemerge. And and our our whole, you know, uh, mission is to try to to shepherd those brands through that valley and get them to the other side where they now have, you know, a sustainable, self-sufficient business that they can build into their, their the dream that they had when they first came up with the idea. Yeah. Oh gosh, the valley of death. I'm glad that we're <laughs> I'm glad that we're going to talk a little bit about financials later on in this conversation, but before we move along to you know, really getting into the convo, I'll say one of the things that I have admired about TIG and about your work with brands is that it it feels like you you are so invested in every client that you work with and to see you jump in and you know, almost act like a, you know, an an integral part of their team is just so, it's so wonderful to watch. I really love that about TIG. Well, thanks. I mean, that's the mentality. We we view ourselves as stakeholders and and there's a reason for that. One is because I'm a terrible consultant (laughs) uh, and a coach because I I don't do well standing on the sideline. Um, I'm I'm much better when I get into the messiness in the middle and, and the rest of the team as well. And also, again, I'm just, you know, I just, and I'm, this sounds kind of woo-woo or, um, but so I'm so in awe and so inspired by people who who take the risk and take the challenge to build something they really believe in and want to give birth to something that I just feel absolutely obligated to, to do everything I can to get them to that point where they can actually see it manifest. And so it's not a, it's not, for any other reason than that. It's an obligation. It's, it seems like a moral uh, imperative. Oh, I, 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 I love that. I love that about you. And I love that about Tig. Uh, So I know, I know you are working so closely with so many brands at this point and you have this insider perspective on what is going on right now. Can we talk about life post COVID-19 and, and what's changing right now? What is, what's changing for early stage brands? Um, everything and nothing. And that sounds strange. So, I mean, everything, because there's, there's uncertainty at a different degree, right? I mean, when you start a brand like this, there's, you know, in this space, there's always the unknown. Um, but you have portions of, uh, your business and your, your, um, uh, surroundings that that have some degree of consistency, and the rug has been literally pulled out mm-hmm. from underneath. Whether that's from not having trade shows or buyer meetings to funding to et cetera, um, but but what I mean by nothing is that at the at its essence, fundamentally good businesses, fundamentally good brands, still have a huge opportunity to succeed, and those that are fundamentally flawed are still at risk. And what this period that we're going through of, you know, of absolute madness in the external world is doing is just simply um, unearthing or making more apparent those opportunities or those flaws that, that are already inherent in a brand where it is today. I think that those are really wise words. And I want to 
reiterate something that you said, Elliot, is that the that uncertainty is always a part of being in the food industry. Uncertainty is always a part of being an entrepreneur. And so while we are in a period of more uncertainty, it doesn't, it, I don't know, there's something reassuring to, to realize that we're entrepreneurs. We were made for this. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, the world is always uncertain and impermanent and I don't want to get too philosophical. Um, but when real disruption happens, when, when, you know, I, I kind of, the analogy I kind of think, think of is that it's, it's not until you shake a snow globe, does the magic happen, right? That's when it happens. And, um, entrepreneurs are, are at their best in this situation. Yeah. My, my mantra of late, and I, I think I'm probably driving a bunch of people crazy by <laughs> using it, but I like so into it. And, and that is why the more, the masses are out hoarding toilet paper. You know, the entrepreneurs of the world are buying bidets. Yes. I mean, just think differently. And yeah. that is such a secret weapon right now. And, and really what we should all be leaning into is that ability to see the world through, through lenses that, that others just don't see it through. Yeah. And, and we, that's the wonderful thing about being an entrepreneur that we do see the world differently and we can choose to respond in a different way. Yep. So everything and nothing is changing for early stage brands. But I know that we have some listeners being like, well, that's BS, Allie. Like, I will tell you that everything has changed for me right now. Um, some of the things that we, we are seeing change is the ability to connect with wholesale accounts and or the inability to connect with wholesale accounts and the ability to connect with consumers online. Um, I'm sure you're experiencing that with your brands as well. Yep. I mean, absolutely. And, and, and again, what I mean by, because I mean, it won't be the first time that I've been told I'm full of crap and that's great. Um, but what I mean explicitly is just that. So, so while that's been exacerbated or accelerated or, or made more apparent by this disruption, that trend had been existing for a long time. It was getting... Yep it was getting harder and harder to have a meaningful dialogue or a meaningful interaction with your wholesaler, your buyer at the retail level and your consumers more and more are wanting to own their relationship with the brands they were buying. And this is only, you know, again, knocked away some of the fog that was covering that and that, mm -hmm. that reality yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and sped up that reality, but that had been there before. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. People have been complaining about connecting with wholesale buyers for as long as I can remember. It's it's always been challenging. Um, what do you think is going to change in brick and mortar moving forward? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things that are going to change. I mean, one of the things that that I see, and this is obviously opinion, but that I see that was very much exposed by this is the pressure that skew proliferation puts on the supply chain, mm. both the distributor and the retailer. Sure. You know, stores have been trying to be everything and everything and, and anything to their to their consumers. And they're terribly over skewed. And when this happened and and there was, you know, significant demand on certain aspects, as we now call them essentials, um, it it proved how difficult and how um, debilitating in many ways that skew proliferation um, uh, was on our ability to react quickly and keep stores yeah. in stock. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's going to change. I think both sides of that equation are going to do 
a lot of work around skew rationalization. And if you're a brand listening, you should be doing the same, recognizing that. And, you know, that's where you can have a, you know, a, a, an omni-channel kind of strategy where, where you pick certain SKUs that work well in retail and keep that limited. And if you want to expand your SKUs, you do that more through your e-commerce. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that makes so much sense, right? Like it, there are some things that work on the retail shelf and there are some things that work when you sell them on Amazon or sell them directly on your own website. And it's really important to, to realize that it's not a one size fits all product yeah. assortment anymore. Well, and it's beyond that. It's also the way we were kind of incenting or, or, you know, from a brand perspective, you know, a way to grow your revenue was, was further penetration in existing counts by skew, mm. by skew, yeah. uh, you know, increases. And also for retailers that gave more promotional activity, more promotional dollars. So there was, there was an economic engine behind that. I think that's going to change the, the other component of why I think that's going to change is I think the way people are going to shop, at least in the near term, and we, we, we do all suffer a bit from short-term memory, but um, <laughs> uh, in, in the near term, I think people will, will be more prescriptive in their trips to the store sure. um, and not spend as much time treasure hunting, which is going to put more pressure, especially on younger brands, on driving discovery and trial, which was already terribly difficult to do yeah. in, in brick and mortar. I think it's only going to get harder to be discovered there. Uh, and so recognizing that and recognizing that that may not be uh, the best place to drive discovery uh, is important as a brand thinks through their go-to-market strategy, and especially in the early days. That's a great point, Elliot, because I think it, it's so obvious that, you know, for the foreseeable future, when when we do go to the grocery store, we want it to be in and out. You know, you go in with a list, you've got your game plan and you are in and out of there as quickly as possible. And you're, it's no longer a, I mean, I know not everyone had this relationship, but like I would get so much pleasure out of going to the grocery store and looking at the shelves and seeing what new products were there. And I think that that, you know, that is not happening anytime soon. Yeah, I, I yeah. would agree. I mean, I think those, like I said, those days of treasure hunting are over, at least in the in the near to near to long term. Yeah. I have to say personally, as I've been doing more online shopping, so I've been using a lot of um, like curbside pickup and I, I do a, a lot of shopping on good eggs. I have been enjoying the discovery online these past few weeks yeah. because I can, you know, sit on my couch and scroll and, and feel like I do have, I have more time to think about building my basket right now, my online basket. Yeah. And that excites me. I mean, it excites yeah. me for a lot of reasons. One is that, you know, people buy stories, consumer buy stories and, you know, building a digital relationship directly with your consumer is a great way to be able to tell, tell the story. And the other thing that, that I personally love about it is it really democratizes, you know, the playing field, um, you know, with, with exception of, you know, paid content, you know, yep. your ability to, tell your story, make it compelling and get consumers to become evangelists is just as great as Nestle's. Um, You you could be, you, you can do it just as well if, if you can structure that story. And I I love that. I think it levels the playing field and, 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 you know, promotes better capital efficiency for younger brands. 
Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, we had brainstormed offline was this, this question around how brands can be capital efficient. And as they drive discovery and trial, and what I'm hearing you say is, you know, one of the ways is, is with their online storytelling. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, first of all, capital efficiency is going to be the new velocity. I mean, it's just that important um, uh, because, because going back to our, our favorite term of the day, the valley of death, um, that valley just, you know, got deeper and wider. And so brands are going to have to get further with less. And yeah. so that all comes down to making every dollar of capital that you do have generate more revenue. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, the, the very simplistic view of capital efficiency. So you have to, you have to look at ways to drive discovery without having it to be as expensive as the traditional ways to do it. And, um, certainly on online storytelling is, is key. Uh, but also I kind of view things as, as kind of concentric circles and it, you know, you're when most of you listening to this podcast started a product because you're either solving what you saw as a problem in the market or an unmet need. And so as you think through your, your, your go-to-market and how you drive discovery, um, my recommendation would be to start with empathy first and mm. think about the consumer that you're trying to, to, to um, you know, uh, acquire based on that problem you're solving for them or that need that you're filling. And then, you know, determine where, where can I be where that problem is most pronounced or that need most acute and then work your, you work your discovery backwards from there. Yeah. Automatically that's going to be more capital efficient. And that means you have to think differently and out of the box about, you know, the route to market and how you're going to get there. But if you can solve for that question, where is the problem most pronounced? Where is the need most acute and how do I get there? Um, you are going to be solving your great riddle for your brand about where to drive discovery. Oh, I love it. So, so strong, so solid. So Elliot, I'm going to have us pause for a moment here. I'm going to drop in a message from one of my favorite sponsors and we'll be back to talk about fundraising. Hang tight. You hear it from your customers every day. I love your product. I wish this was sold near me. When are you going to be carried at my favorite local store? It is time to capture those customer interactions and put them to work for your brand. WeStock streamlines the product request process and helps get your brand on retail shelves faster by collecting data that is essential for your wholesale pitch. And you have heard me say it enough times by now to know that buyers love data. A pitch that is backed by data is always going to capture that buyer's attention faster than a pitch without it. Learn more about how you can use your fans' product request to perfect your pitch at westock.io or linked in my show notes. And don't forget to use promo code FOODBIZWIZ for 25% off your first year. Okay, we are back. We talked a bit about life post-COVID, the changes that we're seeing with early stage brands and how brands can be capital efficient as they're connecting with their consumers. Elliot, let's talk about Let's talk about money. I know <laughs> I know this is one of the the key things that you do with early stage brands. You help them through these money woes, the valley of death as you say. And can you remind me you said that the valley of death was that that awkward space between seed and series A? For most brands, yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so 
do you have do you have brands who are still attempting to raise capital right now? Yeah, absolutely. And and we've had brands that have had some success in raising capital. I mean, first of all, raising capital is never easy and is never fun. And, you know, but, but when you build, you know, just to use an analogy, when you, when you build a great engine and a great car, you, you have to also make sure you have fuel. And that's really what the capital is. It's the fuel to actually get down the, the track and you, you need it. Um, ideally, if you were in a situation coming into this where you didn't have to raise in this moment in time, lucky for you, awesome. Most brands, especially in the early days, aren't that fortunate. They can't, they can't wait until things clear up or come back mm-hmm. to whatever yeah. degree of normal normal is. Um, they need to raise. And, and so they need to think about, you know, how to structure that raise and how to, how to craft their investment narrative and how to go make it all happen. And again, I think, you know, first of all, it starts with um, going through your cash flow statement. I mean, this is going to be the least sexy part of this podcast. <laughs> FYI. That's fair. Um, We're prepared. Okay. But I mean, this is where you take out a cash, your, your cash flow. And if you're not doing a cash flow on a at least weekly basis right now as an emerging brand, then, yeah. then, then you're, you're really putting yourself at risk. But you should understand very clearly, um, based on every alternative you look at, what the cash implications, inflow, outflows are, and determine how much cash you need to get through um, you know, what, what this imbalance or this disruption is likely to be. Let's, let's say, realistically, nine months. You know, I don't think mm-hmm. you know, we're going to be seeing any type of, again, and I'll use air quotes, normalcy until, you know, Q1 of 2021. Yeah. So, yep. so start with your cash flow and understand where your biggest cash outflows are and then how you ratchet those down, how you become more nimble and more effective. And, and again, look at the channels of your business or adjust your go-to-market strategy um, so that you're more capital efficient and then come up with the number that you need to raise to get you through to the next nine months. Once you have that done, then you then you have to do the 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 uh, reality check, uh, and that is that what was likely to look like the terms uh, prior to this are gone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's plenty of money. First of all, let me say this: there's plenty of money in the market still. Investors are still willing to invest. I've I've spoken with many many of them. Um, awesome. uh, many of the funds still have committed capital, so it's not that the money's gone away. It's just two things. One is that that uncertainty um, creates more perceived risk, which seems odd because this is venture money and or angel money. It's it's uh, automatically risk capital, but you have to think about it from a investor standpoint. Investors are investing in sectors they know because their knowledge, their ability to help those brands de-risk their own investment. What they can't do is control all this other stuff that's mm-hmm. going on around right now. So they perceive more risk. They perceive more uh, because of that uncertainty. So if you're raising, you have to acknowledge that uncertainty and build it into your offer. You yeah. know, Make sure there's some form of uncertainty premium um, that you're bringing to that investor if you want you know, her or him to get their... Um, uh, powder wet, you know, otherwise they're just going to stand on the sidelines and wait. And, right. and it's that the, could be, it's the elephant in the room. You might as well address it. And, that's right. <laughs> right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and that's, you know, and, and, 
you know, we can get as granular as you want, or at the end, I can, you know, leave my contact information and anyone who has any specific questions. I'm more than happy to spend, you know, a little time on the phone sharing what we've been seeing and, and, you know, making any suggestions from a business perspective. Um, but I would, I would also encourage you to make sure at this moment in time that you have a good attorney on your team for this. But, you know, look at your terms, decide what you need to raise, decide what, what creates marginal dilution and, and then build in something that's going to, an excite, to excite an investor who says, listen, I, you know, you come to me with this opportunity, I can wait, but if I wait, I'm going to miss this yeah. really good in. And so I'm going to go ahead and, and invest now. That's what you need to build a compelling case. Yeah. It goes back to building a, a great pitch in the first place, right? That's right. Regardless of what, <laughs> regardless of when you're doing it, it's got to be a pitch that's of interest to that investor in the first place. Yeah, and and again, I'll use this word one more time, and that's empathy. And you know, understand from the investor's perspective that they're still seeing as many, if not more, um, pitches and decks than they mm-hmm. were six weeks yeah. ago. And so, you know, and they're just saying no or later to many more. Uh, so you not only was it hard to stand out prior to this, now you have to stand out even more. Yeah. I want, can, I want to go back to something that you said, Elliot, and this is a message that I want, I wanted to come across so loud and clear for my listeners, especially if you tuned out because you aren't thinking of raising capital for your business, that Elliot, you, you talked about the importance of looking at your cash flow week in and week out, you know, you should be doing that anyways, but especially now, right? And so I see so many young brands who are scared of their numbers and scared of their financials and and they find that it's easier to put their head in the sand than look at their cash flow and look at what's really going on financially in their business. Do you see this with early stage brands as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I see it, I see it with grown grown brands as well. I mean, listen, I mean, yeah, no one goes, I want to create this really, really cool product so I can spend my entire day looking at cash flow. Yeah. Right. That's not yeah. that's not the reason, you know, innovators get into this. And yeah. and also, quite frankly, some of us just suck at it, you know, and that's yeah. okay. That's yeah. when you have to recognize that you need to get help with that. And it doesn't always have to be you know, uh, expensive paid help. There's a lot of places that you can go that for free resources, good resources on yeah. cash flow. There's even, you know, universities that have accounting classes. I mean, don't be yeah. bashful to raise your hand and ask for help on this. But, but Ali, I mean, if there's anything anybody is doing uh, right now that's going to better position them to withstand this, it's getting really intimate with their cash flow. Yeah. It isn't the P&L. It nope. isn't the balance sheet. It isn't velocities or scan data or, or you know, spins or any of the other stuff. It is literally your cash yeah. um, because that is your predictor. That is what is going to determine how far and how much time you have to make this work. And if you don't know that, um, do. Uh, Gary Hirschberg does yep. a ton of stuff uh, on cash flow. It's his, uh, his pet pet peeve too. He'll... he'll uh, probably beat you uh, over the head even stronger than I will. Um, yeah, you he, can watch him and he Andy do. And then um, Tara Johnson actually has a free 13-week cash flow analysis course right now that, that people right. can start at any point. I'll link that in the show notes too. Um, 
I've, we've been talking about it a lot in retail ready and, and people are finding so much value there just to, just to know what's going on. Right. Like until you have that data, you can't make informed decisions for your business. Yeah. And we talked at the beginning about, you know, uncertainty and that is one way to begin to, to reduce that level of uncertainty. And, you know, it may be numbers that are terrifying. It may be numbers that aren't good. Um, but you know, you can only react to things, you know, um, and, and as entrepreneurs, that's what you have to do. And so, um, to not know is it makes you ineffective and it makes you, it weakens your ability to be the kind of innovator that you likely are to have gotten this far. And at the end of the day, it doesn't change your situation, whether you're looking at your numbers or not, you know, if you're not looking at them, the numbers aren't any different, right? I always Uh, say they're looking at you. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So do we have anything else we want to say about fundraising and, and what's going on with early stage brands right now? I feel like we could talk about this for we can. And, and a lot of people do talk about fundraising yeah. all the time. And I think, you know, the one thing that I want to just communicate to everybody is that at the end of the day, um, don't let anyone tell you what's, what, what success looks like or what growth looks like. Decide for yourself. Mm. Decide for yourself based on your risk tolerance, based on what feels right, based on who you want to have around you for the ride. And then that's what you raise capital to and raise capital from people who get that and support you and be patient and, and take your nose and listen and, and just leverage. But I think, you know, if you can build a compelling case, I mean, the last point on this is you have to think of it almost in terms of being a really good trial attorney. You've got to be able to sit in an investor and walk them through why putting them. They're going to put that money somewhere. They're going to invest. That's what they do. They're investors. They're going to invest. But why putting that money with you gives them the best opportunity, not only to make that money back, but to make that money back with a bigger multiple. Mm-hmm. And if you can't really succinctly walk them through that why and take them through that journey, you'll find it very, very difficult to raise the money. Yep. Heard loud and clear. I like that analogy of the the attorney. You've got to convince them. Okay. Let's talk about some silver linings and some and finding opportunity right now. I think, you know, so Elliot, you and I talked offline a bit about the some of the positives that have come from this. And and I, I feel it. I see positives happening all the time, both, you know, within our retail ready group, within our, our broader CPG community, it, it feels like there is this collective hope and, and energy that's happening. Can we talk a little bit about silver linings and, and where brands should focus right now, what they should be thinking about? Yeah, please, God, let's talk about positive stuff. For sure. um, <laughs> All right, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. Uh, yeah, there's. A, I see a lot of positives. I, yeah. I really do. Um, I'll start with the more kind of um, um, soft side or soft skill stuff, and then kind of work my way more towards the the tactical or got it business side. Um, you know, from one thing I think for sure is that we've all seen and learned that, that what we are, the space that we are working on is one of the best business communities, period. Um, the, the amount of support and the way, um, the tribal elders have responded by providing content and access and connections and webinars. And, (laughs) um, it's, I think, you know, we, we should, we should be 
really grateful that we're in the space that we're in. And also, as you and I were talking about earlier, I mean, you know, depending on where you are, now there are brands, I'm sure listening to this, that have, you know, a toe in food service. But I mean, compared to some of the other sectors, we are just so fortunate. We are yeah. so lucky. And, and the natural product space and CPG in general, uh, and it, it tends to be, uh, you know, an outperformer in, in tough times and, yeah. and we're there. So uh, in terms of the more kind of tactical thing, I think a few things have changed. One is that um, uh, there is an absolute movement more towards e-com. And that, again, to our earlier point, democratizes the ability to acquire consumers. Mm-hmm. You do it right. You do it authentically. You have a real voice. You know your consumer. You have just as much of a chance and a right to capture that consumer as a much bigger company. Um, I also think that there's opportunities now, as we talked about skew rationalization, to build direct relationships with retailers. And yeah. so if you're not B2B e-commerce enabled, I would encourage you to to start looking that way and thinking about how to do that, especially if your product is more unique or differentiated and isn't going to be a staple item or a strong perimeter item, you have an opportunity there. Um, I think the way we communicate is going to change. I think buyers are going to become more accessible because they're yeah. going to take yep. more of their, their meetings online. That means they can just have more meetings and also uh, doesn't require the expense or the time to, to travel. I think that's that's you know a big win. Um, if you are in a a product that is anything around immune, um, yeah. well-being, stress reduction, sleep, um, you have an opportunity now and and for a long time because I think consumers are, um, you know, many came into it, uh, came into this with this with this understanding, but many more are going to leave it with with it, and that is, we all have a personal responsibility for our own health, yep. our own immune health, our own you know, gut health, our own um, hygiene and the hygiene and, and, and you know, the, uh, um, you know, the, the way we keep and prevent disease from penetrating yeah. our homes and so forth. So there's huge opportunity there. Um, and, and also, I think that some of the gambling money's off the table. So one of, one of the things that's super hard for a young early stage brand is that when those few brands do win those big dollars mm-hmm. and they spend that big money with, with the retailers and on, on their uh, you know, shopper marketing and, and consumer marketing, that, that it raises the bar for everybody and makes it more inaccessible for those yeah. brands that don't win that. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to see that as much. And so, again, it's a little bit of a leveling of the playing field. I like, I like coming back to that idea that, that we as small emerging brands have this incredible opportunity to compete in a way that, that we didn't have before. Uh, that's exciting to me. It, it really, it really is to me. I mean, here, here's, uh, I'm a, I'm a numbers nerd. I'm a nerd in general, but a numbers nerd in particular. <laughs> um, um, and I can't remember the source, so I, I can't cite it, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to $20 billion of market share since 2009 to 19 um, moved from the top 25 CPG companies to small emerging brands. So there's no doubt that wow. that's where consumers want to buy products. They yep. want to buy it from innovators. They want to buy it from 
small companies who get them and who are answering their need. Um, but yet, yet we were that was being accomplished as those choices for the most part were being filtered by distributors and buyers yeah, yeah. and all of those kind of things. And that filter has just gotten pulled off the lid of the pot. Yeah. And and now we have that opportunity to reach to those consumers directly and and should be you know e-com is not going to replace retail but it certainly can augment retail more for discovery and give you as that emerging young brand the opportunity to connect with your consumer and it starts with knowing who your consumer is yes oh my gosh i i'm so on board with with your message here elliot and i think that it's it's going to be so fascinating to watch what on what unfolds over these next few months and how it continues to affect brick and mortar and e-commerce and broker and distributor relationships and all of that. We are just, things are just changing so rapidly in our industry. And, and while, while, while some of the changes have been challenging for, you know, both of our clients, I do think that this is an, an enormous opportunity to, you know, provide some much needed shakeup in a stagnant industry. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you and I were talking pre-show about technology. It's it's actually fun to see technology begin to permeate this business more. Oh gosh, when I was a buyer, you know, literally 2008, 2009, I was still, when I started at BuyRight, we didn't have any electronic inventory. I literally was counting every piece before I placed an order with a clipboard and pencil. And then I would fax my orders in to brokers and distributors. <laughs> like, why was I still using a fax machine in 2008? It was just wild. And so I'm, I'm so excited to see our industry embrace technology. It's been a long time coming. I agree. Okay. Elliot, I feel like we've We've dropped a lot of, of knowledge on our listeners today. We've talked about a lot of things. I'm, I, gosh, like I said, I could talk to you all day long, but we've got to wrap up at some point. Where, where can people find you? Where, where do you hang out online or how can they stay connected with you? Um, well, you obviously you can find it, find us at our website, yep. which is www.tigbrands.com. And, and, um, you'll find me on LinkedIn as well as our brand. And, um, you can find us on all the usual suspect social, you know, networks, et cetera. But, um, I, I will be happy, you know, I, again, I said this at the onset, I, I feel extraordinarily uh, fortunate to have been able to have a 30 year career in this business to provide for my family. And I feel obligated more so now than ever to, to give back. And I try to do that in as many ways as I can um, through content. You know, I, mm-hmm. I certainly write. And if you go to our website, you can sign up for for our, uh, for our my weekly article, which, you know, again, my goal in that stuff isn't just to write hyperbole or, or things that are um, kind of uh, at high level, but it's actually things that you can, you know, read and go out and hopefully implement. And it's the things that I'm learning from all the the founders, I feel, you know, it's a bit like being a bee. I get to cross pollinate. <laughs> so I would say there, and, you know, we do quite a bit of uh, webinar work and we're yeah. doing our TIG talks. Um, but on a more personal level, this is a scary, stressful time. And if anyone needs a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour of time uh, and has questions uh, that that are specific to them, 
as long as you're a little bit patient about uh, scheduling, I'm more than happy to make the time. And you can just reach out to me directly at my email, which is Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T, at tigbrands.com, and I will respond personally. Elliot, that is so generous of you. And I'll say, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> but I'm, I'm so grateful of the, you know, the knowledge that you've shared with us today and the time that you've given us here on the podcast. And of course, your, your generosity um, with, with my audience. I'm, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I can't wait until I get to see you in person sometime. Yes. <laughs> 2021. Yeah. We'll see if that happens. <laughs> Hopefully soon. And no, thanks so much for having me. And, and really, I said at the onset, but thank you for everything you're doing, you know, especially for the early stage brands. It's just, they're, they're you know, it's, it's a great service. My pleasure. Thanks, Elliot. Okay, Wizzes. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode and Elliot's perspective of what's going on in the food industry and how you can move forward. I, you heard me. I'm always inspired by Elliot's perspective and I can't wait to hear how this episode lands with you as well. So as always, let me know what you, what you thought of today's show in the Food Biz Whiz Facebook group. We have over 700 food industry founders and sales managers in there discussing what's currently happening in our industry. And I would love for you to join in on the conversation. So find our Facebook group at foodbizwiz.com or linked in the show notes, and I'll see you over there. So next week, next week I will be joined by Cameron McCarthy, who is the founder of We Stock, and we're going to talk more about getting on the retail shelf despite the challenges that you're currently facing. I'll see you right back here next Thursday, and until then, stay busy. You're listening to Food Biz Whiz, the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Allie Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going.